Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T, to my bed crimers. Hi, how you doing? Hope you're having a great day. To anyone new, a very warm welcome. Please, after listening to or watching this video, if you feel you learned something or you enjoyed it, do me a favor, hit the like button. It's a free way you can help me and consider subscribing to my channel. Now, let's dig in. We know that Brian Koberger, the suspect in the case of the four slain University of Idaho students, studied under criminal psychology expert Dr. Catherine Ramsland while at DeSales University. Dr. Ramsland, as you may know, has an association with one of the most brutal serialists of all time, Dennis Rader otherwise known as BTK. BTK, a name he gave himself, stands for Bind, Torture, Kill. Ramslin has known the notorious serialist for 11 years, and for five of those years, she collaborated with him on what she calls Raider's guided autobiography. Raider, a serialist who fantasized about becoming famous for his crimes, asked Ramsland to help him tell his story in print. Wanting to learn more about Raider's life, thoughts, what led him to commit such evil acts, the professor agreed with the stipulation that she could ask him questions along the way, guide him in their discussions. Ramsland has said of that autobiography, and I quote, I wanted it to be useful for criminology, psychology, and law enforcement, so I guided him toward thinking about things that we would find useful, end quote. A lot of criminal profilers and psychologists specializing in violent crimes say that they do what they do in order to try and prevent other budding serialists from going down that path. A big part of their motivation for spending their lives delving into such dark subject matter is to learn how to spot potential killers before they act out. In an episode of Cop Tales and Cocktails, Ramslin talked about her 11 years of knowing Raider. She said that she's learned that his imagination is what led him down the path of becoming a serialist. Ramslin explained it like this, and I quote, This actually goes back to the theory of the golden age of serial killers, the sexually compelled serial killers that we spend a lot of media energy on. A lot of them have talked about those true crime magazines in the 1950s and 1960s of scantily clad, bound, terrified women that they fixated on. He's one of them. End quote. Her Ramslin, when Raider was 14, he found such a magazine under the driver's seat of his father's car. At 16, as Raider was developing into a sexual person, he was also devouring these magazines and their suggestive images. I looked up True Crime Magazine because I'd never heard of it. So this was an American true crime magazine that was published from 1924 to 1995. 
Who knew people in the 1920s were as curious about true crime as we are? From what I read, True Detective actually was the first magazine in the United States in the true crime genre. It became a massive hit, selling around 2 million copies per month in the 1930s and 40s. I checked out some of the magazine covers, and sure enough, most of them feature drawings of attractive women with hourglass figures and terrified expressions. In fact, one cover shows a woman with her hands tied. Seeing that, I have to believe that this was maybe one of the magazines that helped spawn Dennis Rader's sick thoughts and fantasies. According to Dr. Ramslin, Rader had already been binding himself, and it was feeling good to him. Yes, he liked to bind himself. He got some sort of sexual gratification out of this. Ramslin said, and I quote, So bondage, that image of a terrified woman, his desire to dominate women because women had humiliated him and his desire to be famous. And he saw on these magazine stories about serial killers, H.H. Holmes and Harvey Glattman and people like that. And then he saw all the media attention to Ted Bundy and some of the 70s serial killers, and he wanted that too. So his fantasy life is what propelled him. End quote. Dennis Rader has identified incidents from his childhood when he says his mother shamed or humiliated him. He's described feeling anger and helplessness at the hands of females when he was a child, and has said that during adolescence, he began envisioning what he calls girl traps and ways of binding women, perhaps as revenge against his mother. I can't help thinking that Brian Koberger, in studying under Dr. Ramsland, had to have heard all of this about Raider, seen these same magazine covers, learned about Raider's motivations, thoughts, planning techniques, and consumed every detail of Raider's horrifying crimes. Super sleuth Sweetie Pie Low found some anonymous posts that seemed to trace back to Brian Koberger, wherein he critiqued some women he's paid to see images of on OnlyFans. In case you've not heard of this, OnlyFans is an internet content subscription service used mostly by porn creators, but also a lot of good-looking content creators, influencers, mostly female, but some male creators too. Most of the audience members are male, with a 69% to 31% male-female split of fans on Instagram. From what I read, so a person can pay a fee to see photos and videos of their favorite OnlyFans creator. And from what I understand, the photos and videos generally feature those women and men, scantily clad or unclad. I went on the website for a brief period, very brief, and it looks like you can filter your selections, perhaps even pick creators who are into bondage. If the posts critiquing certain OnlyFans female creators were really made by Koberger, then it would appear that he spent some time and money on the site. Some of his alleged critiques of certain women's accounts were him saying that he felt they weren't showing enough of their bodies 
or they weren't wild enough in what they shared. He was saying that a $50 subscription for one female was worth the money. It was almost like he was writing an Amazon review. All of this makes me wonder if Koberger, like Raider, was also propelled into dark fantasies of harming females because of the humiliation he was subjected to in middle and high school. By all accounts, Koberger was mercilessly bullied back then, and often by female classmates. Perhaps Koberger, like Raider, found solace in his imagination, where he could conjure scenarios of himself having power over females and exacting the ultimate revenge for the trauma females subjected him to in adolescence, which is such an impressionable time. I found an article on Newsweek.com entitled, How Teen Experiences Affect Your Brain for Life by Russ Juskalian. Juskalian wrote this, and I quote, Thanks to sophisticated imaging technology and a raft of longitudinal studies, we're learning that the teen years are a period of crucial brain development subject to a host of environmental and genetic factors. This emerging research sheds light not only on why teenagers act the way they do, but how the experiences of adolescence from rejection to binge drinking can affect who we become as adults, how we handle stress, and the way we bond with others. In the article, a neuroscientist at Harvard named Dr. Francis Jensen details how our brains are not finished maturing by adolescence, as was previously thought. She said that adolescent brains are only about 80% of the way to maturity at that point. In fact, she said that it takes until the mid-20s, and possibly even later, for a brain to become fully developed. According to Dr. Jensen, humans have an excess of gray matter, at the beginning of adolescence. Gray matter is the stuff in our brains that does the processing of information. This excess gray matter during adolescence makes us particularly brilliant at learning, but it also makes us particularly sensitive at that time to the influences of our environment, both emotional and physical. Per Dr. Jensen, this developmental timeline of the brain is why a teenager, and I quote, can be so quick to conjure a stinging remark or a biting insult, and so uninhibited in firing it off at the nearest unfortunate target, a former friend perhaps, or a bewildered parent. The impulse to hurl an insult is there just as it may be for an adult in a stressful situation, but the brain regions that an adult might rely on to stop himself from saying something cruel just haven't caught up, end quote. So there was Brian Koberger during adolescence getting bullied and humiliated at a time when his brain was still developing and when it was particularly vulnerable to these traumatic and cruel experiences. And at the same time, some of his adolescent female classmates, also dealing with their developing brains, were quick to do and say cruel things to him without a filter. 
It sounds like a recipe for disaster and also maybe a recipe for a killer. That same Newsweek article quoted Dr. J. Geed, a scientist at the Child Psychiatry Branch of the National Institutes of Mental Health, as saying that one of the last parts of the brain to mature is the frontal lobe. That area is responsible for modulating reward, planning, impulsiveness, attention, acceptable social behavior, and other roles that are known as executive functions. Geed said that thanks in part to the frontal lobe, we're able to do things like plan to arrange a designated driver on a night out, or restrain ourselves from getting into physical fights anytime we get involved in an argument. Geed went on to explain that, unfortunately, it's those types of behaviors that teenage brains are not developed enough to deal with. The article said that at the same time the teen brain is still developing, there are profound social and psychological shifts going on. The article says, and I quote, of particular importance is that adolescence is the time when we develop stronger social connections with our peers and more independence from our parents, end quote. Unfortunately, as we know, not all teens are able to develop those connections to their peers because they find themselves rejected or on the outside of some cliques. Per this article, healthy relationships have a positive effect on how an adolescent navigates through life. I'm assuming the opposite is also true, that unhealthy relationships have a negative effect on how an adolescent navigates through life. The article then quoted yet another doctor, Dr. Mitch Prinstein, a professor and director of clinical psychology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, who said this, and I quote, The most potent predictors of why adolescents engage in all kinds of health risk behaviors substance use, sexual behavior, even recently self-cutting, is very much related to how much they perceive that their close friends are doing the same thing or someone that they consider very cool and popular is doing the same thing. One of Koberger's former classmates said that Brian desperately wanted to be accepted into the popular kids group, and that he also set his sights on one of the most popular girls who told him to get lost. We also know that Koberger got addicted to heroin in high school. Apparently, all these upsetting rejections combined with drug use can have lifelong consequences for a human being. The article brought up a study that was done under a professor named Tony Pack in the Department of Cell and Molecular Physiology at Loyola University in Chicago. In the study, rats were exposed to binge drinking as adolescents, and those same rats later developed troubling issues as adults. Here's what the article said, and I quote, When given alcohol— the former teen binge-drinking rats 
had abnormally high levels of the stress hormone cortisol, and when given repeated doses of alcohol, their brains failed to desensitize to the stress hormone response as quickly as those of normal rats. When the rats' brains were analyzed post-mortem, Pack found that the former adolescent drinkers had profound changes in the genetic expression of the system that regulates stress hormone release. Professor Pact said this, that is the same type of profile that we see in adult patients who have been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and other mood disorders. They are not able to get used to stressors and they have very exaggerated responses to mild stress, end quote. The article went on to say this, other research supports the hypothesis that these kinds of prolonged impacts of environmental exposure, not just to alcohol, but to other types of factors like bullying or abuse, can persist through adulthood and possibly be passed down to future generations. Just last year, a study of the brains of suicide victims who had been abused as children, showed abnormalities in the genetic expression of the same general stress regulation system called the HPA axis that PAC studied in rats, end quote. Another study found that peer rejection creates a greater chemical stress response in adolescents compared with younger children. Here's what the article said, and I quote, and the authors of the paper on that study noted that an increased stress response might be a biological strategy that allows adolescents to adapt to their environment, but that in high-risk individuals, this upward shift in stress response may tip the balance toward stress response dysregulation associated with depression and other psychopathology. As Kevin Beaver, a Florida State University researcher who studies adolescence and crime, says, stress can pull the trigger on the genetic gun, end quote. Okay, that was a lot. But if we can drink this all in and apply it to Brian Koberger, who the police believe is the person who savagely killed Kaylee Gonsalves, Maddie Mogan, Zana Cronodal, and Ethan Chapin in such an personal, up-close, vicious attack, we can begin to see the path that might have led this guy to this place if he is the killer. What do you guys think? Let me know in the comments. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories. For those of you who've hung in here all this way, please do me a favor and smash the like button and let me thank you so profoundly for spending this time with me.